Acts chapter 13, uh, we're going to actually begin this morning in verse 13. Before you cast your eyes there, it might be helpful to give you just a backdrop of what's transpired uh, leading up to verse 13 of of chapter 13. Uh, Really, this chapter is a shift in the book of Acts. Uh, This begins that point where Jesus said in Acts 1 verse 8, He told his disciples, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That's really chapters 1 through 12. In chapters 13, we see the, the gospel witness be expanded to yet another additional part of that verse, the remotest parts of the earth. And part of that remotest part of the earth is this city called Antioch. And this church in Antioch develops about 200 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, this church is prompted by the Holy Spirit. And they're prompted to send Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey to the island of Cyprus. And two things to note about Cyprus real quick. One, it is a high concentration of both Jews and Gentiles. This is where Paul and Barnabas are going. But secondly, this island is rife with both idolatry and immorality. And this is a place that the enemy has a stranglehold over. He has a stranglehold over Cyprus. He has cast a curtain and that curtain is darkness. And all of which is being declared thus far in the book of Acts and is even at the beginning of chapter 13 that while the enemy has a stranglehold over Cyprus, God is greater. I mean, that just continues to be championed throughout the book of Acts. God is greater and his gospel is greater. And so Paul and Barnabas, they go. The Lord seeks out the soul of one Sergius Paulus. He's a Roman official. But Satan, right? Pesky, uh, diligent, enemy Satan does not want to yield willingly, and he never does. And so he opposes the saving of one Sergius Paulus. And he opposes saving Sergius Paulus through the influence of one magician named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus' name means the son of salvation. Paul... Filled with the Holy Spirit, fixes a fiery gaze upon Bar Jesus and really says to him, Bar Jesus, you are nothing but you are nothing close to the Son of Salvation. He says, Bar Jesus, you are a fraud. You are full of deceit. You are a son of the devil. You are an enemy of righteousness. And immediately upon saying this, the Lord strikes Bar Jesus with blindness. And while casting Bar-Jesus into darkness, he simultaneously brings one Sergius Paulus into the light of the gospel. Again declaring that God is greater. That his gospel is greater. And so we arrive at verse 13 this morning. We continue on this missionary journey. And I just want to keep it very simple this morning. As we walk through this message that Paul declares... His aim is to simply preach Jesus. There's nothing fancy about this. He just wants to hold out to those present in the synagogue that day. In Pisidian Antioch, he wants to hold out Jesus to them. And have them face him for who he really is. So if you'll begin reading this morning, we'll make a few comments along the way and dive in. Verse 13 reads, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, which is in Cyprus. And came to Perga in Pamphylia. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And just stop there for just a second. Um, 
important to note, this is a different Antioch than the, from the Antioch from which they were sent. This is Pisidian Antioch. This is a, another 200-mile journey up the Mediterranean Sea. And we know from Galatians chapter 4, this isn't just they hopped on a cruise ship and they headed up to, to Perga and then on to Pisidian Antioch. Galatians 4 says that Paul is really, really sick during this journey. And not to mention the fact that 2 Corinthians 11 verse 26 says that Paul says, I've been exposed to many dangers. I've been on many dangerous journeys in danger of floods and in danger of robbers. That is an apt description of this journey from Paphos to Perga to Pisidian Antioch. As Paul and his companions would have had to pass through the flood prone rivers of the Cestrus and Eurymedon. They would have had to make their way up the Taurus Mountains that was infested with bands of robbers. Those, the same robbers that would have plagued Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. This is a, a rugged and dangerous trip that Paul and his companions are making. And in and of themselves, these men are not up to the task. But again, being declared in the book of Acts is that God is greater. And his gospel is greater. And we read in verse 14, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation to the people, say it. You talk about a a golden opportunity (laughs) presented on a silver platter with a big, fat, shiny red bow on it. For me, I picture Paul, he he just, at this point, he probably grins from ear to ear and turns to Barnabas. Like, really? Do I have a word? Seriously? I'm glad you ask. It was the custom in that day, if you were a visiting rabbi, to be given the floor. And so, routinely, when Paul would sit down in the synagogue, he would have a captivated audience. Verse 16. Paul, being very glad that they asked... Does not cower back. He stands up and he motioning with his hands said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, you, your God, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. 400 years in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the desert, and 10 years of God destroying the nations that the land might be distributed among his people. Verse 21 says, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he, God, removed him, Saul, from kingship, he raised up David, 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 David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who would do all my will. And there's verse 23. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel Wait for it, wait for it, a Savior. And what is his name? His name is Jesus. You can almost feel the atmosphere in the room that day 
immediately change at that point. I mean, the, the hearts of their, the, the engines of their hearts are beginning to rev up as, as Paul begins to walk them through their cherished and loved history. They love this history. This is part of who they are as a people. And you can almost get a sense where their backs are straightening up, you know, and their, their chest kind of sticks out a little bit more as Paul begins to make his way through their history. Perhaps various heads across the room were nodding in affirmation. And then Paul immediately rushes them to the point at hand. From the descendants of this man, lowercase, small m, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. A Savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming, verse 24, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled these prophetic utterances by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. And then you have verse 30. Because church, we have to have verse 30. They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. And he was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised... Did not undergo decay. Therefore let it be known to you brethren. That through him. Pay attention. Listen people of Israel. Those who fear God. That through him the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things. From which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore take heed. So that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And then he quotes Habakkuk 1. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work in which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And so this morning we set this 
very large sermon. We put it under a microscope. And again, I want to emphasize just the simple aim by Paul. And we'll keep it simple for, for our purposes this morning. His aim is to preach Jesus. And the first thing that he does among his own countrymen is to point their attention to Jesus through the grid of history. And specifically, Israel's history. Jesus is literally the culmination of history, is what Paul desires his countrymen to see. Now, a popular line of thinking today is that history is really is just pointless. That history is just a, a repetition of meaningless cycles, which is convenient for human beings. Why? I mean, if history is meaningless, that really frees human beings to, to really live any way that they want to without, without the fear of accountability before our divine and moral judge, right? But is that true to reality, church? The answer is no. The answer is history is going somewhere. And that somewhere is the culmination of all things in the Messiah's kingdom. That somewhere is, is man's broken fellowship with God being restored. All that was shattered by the fall being renewed. Deliverance from the bondage of sin and death being fully accomplished. And all of this will occur. It's going to this place. All of this will occur, Paul says, through one. All of this will occur through Jesus. All of this will occur through his coming, his incarnation, his sacrificial death. All of this will occur through Jesus, his second coming to set up his earthly millennial reign. All of this is going to occur through Jesus, who is going to set up his eternal rule over the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus, he is the climax of history. It is all about Jesus. And so Paul begins with that which is very dear to their own hearts. God's providential care for Israel. As he mentions for them that which they are very familiar with. The patriarchal age, the exodus. Just look back in, earlier in Acts 13. It says the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He chose them. He made a covenant with them. He made them increase. And we know in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says, A new king would arise over Egypt, a king who would not know Joseph. And this king would become very, very afraid of the growing number of Israelites. And in his fear, he would enslave God's people and cruelly mistreat them. And all along that way, this is what Paul is bringing them along, on the path that he's bringing them along on. All along the way, was there ever once that God forgot his people? No. Though a king arose over Egypt, though he enslaved them, though he mistreated them, God never once forgot about his people. Instead, it says, with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And what does this communicate at this point to Paul's audience? If you were to write anything down this morning, I'm going to say it several times. What this communicates to Paul's audience is this. Their God. Theirs is a God who is a loving God. Who is in control of all things. And has the power to deliver. From the very outset of opening his mouth. I want you to get this. 
People of Israel, those who fear God, listen. Your God is a loving God. He's in control of all things. And he most definitely has the power to deliver. Paul's saying, you have seen the arm that is mighty to save. Your history literally screams of its strength. He has the power to deliver. Do these truths in any way for us this morning connect to the gospel? A loving God in control of all things who has the power to deliver through his son. That's deeply embedded in the gospel. That's central to the gospel. A loving God in control of all things who has the power to deliver through his son. Well, Paul's care, uh, God's care for Israel did not stop there. He goes on in the history for a period of about 40 years. And I love the way Paul puts it here. He, he puts up with them in the wilderness. God cared for his people even in spite of the rebellion. In love, he never gave up on them. He puts up with them. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he brings in a new generation into the promised land. And I love when you go back to Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. Moses is, is rehashing for the people of Israel this, this very time in their history. And he's listing for them the seven nations of which God, that's very important to remember, God did the destroying, God did the conquering, not Israel. Because he goes on to write in Deuteronomy 7, he lists these nations, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And he says this statement, for me, I have to underline. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And the, the wonderful truths attached to that is that though those seven nations be greater and stronger than you, they are not stronger than God. God is stronger. God is greater. And so over 450 years, God shows his power, his care, his faithfulness toward Israel. And in case you, we still do not see this as a big deal, we just keep, we just keep running through their history. Israel takes possession of the land. They go on to continue to be unfaithful to their God. And in their unfaithfulness... The enemies around them begin to oppress them. God gives them judges until Samuel the prophet. They in turn ask for a king, which is just crazy and mind-boggling. God is their king. But nevertheless, they ask for a king. God gives them a king, Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. Keep in mind, Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. His former name used to be Saul, no doubt in honor of this first king. So we see what's going on here. But God removes the Saul from kingship after 40 years. And he raises up David to be their king. And if you'll just put your eyes again to verse 23 for a moment. As we, we focus in on this verse. Because really here is the purpose of Paul's historical drive through The purpose is this. From the descendants of this man, again lowercase... According to promise, a promise that began at the very beginning of this history lesson in Genesis 3. According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. 
Why this tactic by Paul? I mean, what is he really doing? I mean, to put it in simple terms, really what Paul is doing, he's just setting the stage for the gospel. I mean, his aim, again, just to reiterate, is to preach Jesus, is to present Jesus to them, to hold out Christ to them. And so what he's doing is he's highlighting God's character throughout their history. A loving God, full of power, care, faithfulness. He's a his authority. He is judge. He's a loving God in control of all things who has the power to deliver. And simultaneously, while highlighting God's character, at the same time, he's also highlighting the fact that you, you need delivering. I mean, he's highlighting man's character as long, along the way as well. Not only does your God have the power to deliver, but you need delivering. You proud and unfaithful, needy, hopeless, desperate, unable people are in need of delivering. And so this highlighting poses a problem to those who are listening and thus calls for them a response. As Paul says, take heed, (laughs) pay attention. This Jesus offers the forgiveness that you need. Believe on him lest you perish in your sins. There is Jesus' solution. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the rightful heir of the throne. He's from the line of David, from whom God would promise the Savior would come. It is He. It's Jesus. Believe on Him, lest you perish. The takeaway take question for me, at this point for me, is I'm walking, many of you know I have a desk in the middle of my office. At this point, this is that, this is that part where I've, I've probably made about 600 laps around the, the desk. I don't sit still for very long. Uh, I'm a pacer. Um, sometimes you'll see me on the phone. I'll be out on the field. And people go, what on earth are you doing? I just, I'm, I'm moving. I'm walking. But this is that part in the passage where I sit down. And it gets, it gets real personal for me. As I ask, I'm not of Israel. I, I'm not part of a church that has replaced Israel. So what does this understand, my understanding of this history, how does that understanding of that history bolster my worship of Christ, say, this Palm Sunday and, and this Easter? While I be not Israel and we're not Israel, this history that God has sovereignly orchestrated through the sending of His Son it's just as powerful and just as worship prompting for us today. Brack, if I would encourage you this morning, we walk away as we read Acts chapter 13, we should, we should cherish. I mean, and cherish is, really it doesn't do it justice. We should cherish all that was accomplished to procure our salvation. Amen? I mean, we should love it. All that was accomplished so that you might be forgiven. And on top of that, and more than that, we should cherish the God who made such procuring possible. I mean, we look at that history, and it screams to us, again, a loving God who is in control of all things and who has the power to deliver through His Son. We should cherish this. We should love this. Let's continue on this morning in Paul's sermon. Because you can imagine someone in the synagogue that day, perhaps not very different than someone in this room this morning, 
Paul's blazing away. Full of the Spirit of God. And he's holding out Christ to them. And there they are. Heels dug in in unbelief. Just hard-hearted rebellion against God. Jesus being proclaimed to him. Through him is the forgiveness of sins. Through him you are freed from all things. There they are. Arms crossed. The cynic. The skeptic. The denier of Christ. And Paul says, I'm not done. And you imagine that person there and his arms are crossed. And now he's, not, he's no longer nodding his head in affirmation. He, Paul has said that word in which they hate, the name of Jesus. And Paul says, I'm not done. I'm not done. Not only does Old Testament history point to Jesus as your Messiah. But prophecy points to Jesus as your Messiah. And that's where you have verses 23 through 37. And it's important to note here this, that Paul is not trying to convince them. His aim is not to convince them. His aim is to hold out Jesus. God has the power to deliver. He trusts that. He knows that. And so in verse 23, he really ties together Paul's, really the two points that he's making as he's holding out Christ to them. Historically, Jesus is the Messiah. He's from the line of David. But prophetically as well, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one whom, verse 23, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior. It's a promise God reiterated since the beginning of creation. And Jesus was literally the fulfillment of all. Not some. Not enough to say that he was it. All of them. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah. Let's just look at a few in this, in this sermon this morning. It's Paul's sermon that we're examining. Paul begins not, not just even with Christ. He says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the one who was just prior to Christ. As Paul references the forerunner of the Messiah. Even he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that you should have known and understood. Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. We're familiar with that passage. A voice crying out, right? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And and Paul's saying that's John the Baptist. You know, the guy who lost his head. What's John the Baptist? And even though, even as Jesus said in Matthew 11, he was the greatest man to be born of a woman up to his time in humility. John the Baptist was clear to make the distinction, I am not he. In humility, he simply proclaimed a baptism of repentance. Prepare your hearts, Christ is coming. Your Messiah is coming. Someone is coming who I am even unworthy to untie his sandals. Paul says, John the Baptist is is who God said in Malachi 3, verse 1. I'm going to send my messenger. And he's going to prepare the way before me. Paul says, it's John the Baptist. Then Paul anticipates and answers two questions, which he does a lot. He anticipates and answers two questions that might have arisen in the minds of his hearers. First question is this. 
All right, Paul. If Jesus is the Messiah, as you say he is, if Jesus is the Messiah, why do the Jewish leaders fail to recognize him as such? And that's a question that has existed since apostolic times until now. If Jesus is the Messiah, why did they miss it? And, and really, Paul's answer is the same as Stephen's. The reason they missed it is because of their sin-darkened, hardened hearts. These so-called experts in the Old Testament failed to completely understand its teaching. I mean, had they understood it, they would have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But even still, in their failure, they literally, which is, you just love this. They literally fulfilled the very prophecies that they failed to understand by condemning Jesus to death. You talk about God using the ignorance of man for his own purposes and plan. He, they literally fulfilled the prophecies that they did not understand by condemning him to death. And so the second question anticipated by Paul is if Jesus is the Messiah... And if the Messiah was rejected, does that in any way at all nullify God's plan? And humanly speaking, we can understand that question, right? I mean, their last image of Jesus was nailed to a cross. The last report of Jesus was that he was laid in a tomb. And so if the Messiah was rejected... Does that nullify the plan of God? And Paul says, you, you all have really missed it. That line of thinking could not be further from the truth. That's far from it. This does not nullify the plan of God. This is, this is part of that loving God and being in control of all things who has the power to deliver. This is part of his control and plan. As we see literally... <laughs> All that was fulfilled even in the cross. All that was accomplished at Calvary. All the Old Testament prophecies. Just Let's just, let's just for a moment blitz through those this morning. I, I just want us to, uh, to walk through, to remind ourselves as we approach Good Friday and Easter. Just to remind ourselves again, the cross of Christ. The laying down of his life willingly. All that was accomplished, all that was prophesied to occur, happened. Isaiah 53.3 said he would be despised and forsaken of men. Paul says that they hated Jesus without cause. He said they found no ground to put him to death, yet even still they asked Pilate that he be executed. Which fulfills Psalm 69 verse 4 that Jesus quoted in John 15. says that the, the men who hate me without cause are more than the hairs on my head. They had no grounds to kill him. And they hated him without cause. Even the heinous act of crucifixion itself is a fulfillment of prophecy. And the fact that Old Testament prophecy... Predicted that the Messiah would be crucified is amazing in and of itself. I mean, crucifixion wasn't even a Jewish form of execution. People in Old Testament times did not even know of crucifixion. And yet we have passages like Psalm 22 and Numbers chapter 21 that literally depict the Messiah dying in this way. 
Absolutely amazing. A loving God in control of all things. Let's just look at the prophecies fulfilled on the cross. Psalm 109, verse 25. And, and, and again, I, I work with students and, and sometimes I get the sense that the, the glaze in the eyes. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like they, they've checked the moment that they've checked out. I want to encourage you this morning as we walk through a few of these. I, I really want it to wash over us. I, I want it to prompt a worship to our God that He deserves. I want us to be amazed. I want. I don't want to read these. I don't want to know these and just be. Oh, that's that's kind of that's kind of cool. I, I just. I want us to be taken back. You have passages like Psalm one hundred nine, verse twenty five, said the Messiah would be a reproach, one whom people would walk by and wag their heads. Psalm 22, verses 17 through 18, said the crowds would stare at, stand at his feet and stare at him. His executioners would divide up his clothes among them by lot. Psalm 69, verse 21, predicted that he would be given vinegar and gall to drink. Even Christ's cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's mentioned in Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 31, verse 5. Christ's words of Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 34, verse 20 says that his executioners would not break any of his bones. And indeed they did not. Zechariah 12, verse 10 said the Messiah would be pierced in his side by a spear. And indeed he was. And what should this do to us? What should all of that do to us? The answer to that is this. What that should do to us is the same thing that it should have done to those listening that day. Which is amazement. Amazement that a loving God... Has control over all things. And has the power to deliver. Which is this is important for them to get. And for us to get. Through his son. That's the message. He has the power to deliver through his son. The uplifted arm that had led them out of Egypt. Is attached to the same hand that had sent his son to die a cruel death. At the hands of godless man. Godless men, it's the same arm that led them out of Egypt is attached to the same hand that sent Jesus to die on a cross. That saving one sent for our salvation. And Paul says, people of Israel, listen. Those who fear God, his name is Jesus. And then you come to verse 30. Verse 30, Paul comes to that climactic truth of his sermon. And what is that truth? We love this truth. The truth is this, the same one who God orchestrated would come from the line of David. The same one who God orchestrated would die for the sins of many. 
is the very same one who God raised from the dead. And of all the proofs that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, this is the greatest. Not that he was from the line of David. Not that he fulfilled all those Old Testament prophecies. The greatest proof that screams out to them and to us today that Jesus is the Messiah, that freedom and forgiveness of sin comes only and only through him is the very fact that this was the one whom God raised from the dead. Paul would later on write in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that this Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Through Christ's death and resurrection, Paul says the good news of the promise God made to the fathers, it's been fulfilled. Through a living Messiah would be the channel of the sure and holy blessings God promised to David and his posterity. It's through Christ and he is alive. God raised him from the dead. Through him, Jesus' forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes, Paul says, is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. We've been walking, the students have been walking through Romans 8 recently. And we all love Romans 8 1. And hopefully, the majority of individuals in this room, my heart's desire is that all the individuals in the room. Love Romans 8, 1, and it's true of them. That wonderful passage, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Romans 8 goes on to say, so for what the law could not do, as weak as it was through the flesh, God did. I, don't you love, I love simple words. I'm a simple person. The law could not do, God did. Through the sending of his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Praise God there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through him is the forgiveness of sins. Through him we have been freed from all things. How should we respond? Just to close here. How should we respond? Well, the answer is the same way that they were called to respond. Number one is take heed. Perhaps there's someone here today, you, you have never placed your trust in Christ for this forgiveness that is mentioned here in Acts 13. My prayer this morning is the Spirit of God would make it painfully, yet profoundly obvious to you that you need that forgiveness. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would make it painfully and profoundly real to you that not only do you need that forgiveness, forgiveness is readily available to you through Christ. That today could be the day of salvation. I mean, Paul said, for everyone who believes... Believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Puts their trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. Can be saved. That's why Psalm 2 says, give homage to the Son. 
Give homage to the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For soon his wrath will be kindled. That day is coming. His wrath is there. He is a holy God and sin will be judged. And for thus, for, for those in this room this morning who have placed their trust in Christ, we know this. God's wrath is real and it's in full fury. But if you be in Christ this morning, that wrath has been absorbed. Because that passage goes on to say, blessed are those who take refuge in him. I trust you're taking refuge in Christ today. I trust you're taking refuge in Christ. 